In January 2020, experts from around the world gathered in Bogota, Colombia at the Universidad de los Andes for the launch of the Drugs and Development Hub, set up by the London School of Economics, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and the Global Partnership on Drug Policies and Development. This initiative seeks to bring together academics, decision-makers and people affected by drug economies to discuss new approaches to drug policy. The original focus looked at development-orientated approaches to drug economies and the resilience of communities affected by drug cultivation and trafficking. Today, as the Drugs and Development Hub launches the next phase, we explore what drug markets and cultivation look like on the African continent. But we also look at how a change in approach following the DDH development-led example could help stem the tide of illicit drugs and improve the lives of those it affects. Welcome to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindim Tongana. So before we get into the meat of our discussion, let's first turn to John Collins for some context. John is the Director of Academic Engagement at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and the host of the Crime Beyond Borders podcast. He was at that first meeting in Bogota. So we're now in the second phase of the Drugs and Development Hub. Um, the first phase focused almost exclusively on Colombia and Latin America. And our goal was to form a global network that could discuss, evaluate and come up with new development-driven approaches and proposals for global drug policies. So for our phase two, we decided to focus specifically on Africa and draw in particular on the extensive networks and expertise of the global initiative. And that's what we'll do today. Take a look at drug markets and drug cultivation across Africa. And we'll explore the regions more specifically, starting in North Africa before heading to East Africa, then Southern Africa, and finally West Africa. Also, we'll explore how a development-driven approach to drug policy, which John mentioned, could make a real difference in Africa. First, let's look at the drug markets themselves. Well, Africa has always been well known for uh, cannabis and to a lesser degree, cat in the eastern part of the continent. And cannabis is, is quite widespread. There's a long history of use, production, growth, cultivation, and uh, it's found in just about every country across the continent. Jason Eli is a senior expert for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and has been studying African drug markets in detail for a number of years. CAT is a bit more geographically limited to the Horn of Africa and, and some of the eastern coastal states. There's a, a relatively long-standing history of heroin coming in from southern Asia, Afghanistan in particular, transiting eastern Africa originally to, to Europe and beyond, but in the last few decades, it's been targeting as well many of the countries across the continent. So there's a lot of inter-regional distribution, uh, micro-trafficking, as it were, of, of heroin throughout the continent. Cocaine is, is reasonably new to the continent in, in that it has been transiting the western shores and more recently through some North African countries. 
as the Indian cocaine is is making its way to European markets and also to, to markets beyond that. But in recent years, there's been a, a growing amount of cocaine that's also been transiting through the southern and, and eastern shores, through uh, shipping channels in particular, both in terms of coming to Africa as a destination for onward trafficking, also arriving for use, and then in some volume moving eastward still to southern Asia and, and East Asia in particular. Methamphetamine and other synthetic drugs are, are also reasonably recent in their availability and profile of use. Methamphetamine is probably the, the best known of these. It's been produced in southern Africa since the early 90s, but it's now also produced in some volume in West Africa and used uh, quite uh, extensively across southern and growing in, in eastern Africa. Synthetic cannabinoids have been arriving in the last 10 years or so, originating in the chemical production points of India and also China. The Indian Ocean Islands have been destinations for these particular substances. There's, there's a lot less known about how pervasive their use is on the mainland, but it's expected that there is some volume of use, particularly given that herbal cannabis itself and, and cannabis resin are so widely available and so widely used. There are some other lesser uh, synthetic drugs. A common one in South Africa, for example, is something they call Mandrax, which is a methaquilone. There's also synthetic cathinone. Cathinone is, is one of the chemical substances of cat and a, and a variety of other uh, MDA, ecstasy, things that people are used to. So the African market as a whole, if, if you think of the continent in terms of drug use, is really quite diverse. It has been evolving quite rapidly in the last 10 or 15 years or so. And the profile of use is, is really also quite diverse from country to country. So historically, where we would have looked at the continent and said, cannabis, yes, some cat, some other herbal substances, but most of the other harder drugs, as it were, are, are simply transiting through to bigger markets in the West. That's just simply not true today. Yes, there's still a, a large volume of transit, but there's an extraordinary amount of use going on of a, a wide diversity of substances across the continent. And I think that's where our knowledge base is really quite limited as, as we look at Africa today. Jason has done a lot to increase this knowledge base. Over the past two years, he's produced two substantial reports for the Global Initiative, which looked at two different illicit drug markets in East and Southern Africa. The first looked at heroin, the second methamphetamines. Both those papers are in the podcast notes. Now, drug use on the African continent is hard to assess. Not only is there a lack of basic information on drug markets at a national or regional level, the information we do have is often based on speculation, such as the assumptions based on seizures by law enforcement, which, as Jason makes clear, is a very limited metric for understanding drug markets. The seizure of a substance doesn't necessarily mean that there's a proliferation of use of that substance in a market. Neither does the absence of seizure of a substance mean the absence of that substance in a particular market. So I think in, in terms of volume of use, the, the first thing that, that it's important to recognize is that we really don't have a firm idea of what is being used. So there's a lot of speculation produced 
extrapolating from some very simple, perhaps unrelated metrics at play here. How are drugs being used? I think we have a better idea, of course, in many markets, and, and we have the public health sector to thank for that, particularly in the context of research around HIV and HIV transmission. That's really helped generate a better understanding of the volume of injecting drug use and, and some of the substances that are being injected. But that is limited in, in many cases to, to countries in, in the eastern seaboard and, and in southern Africa. There's a lot less known about the presence of injecting drug use in many other countries across the continent. So I think when we look at, at a continent that has a population of uh, 1.2, 1.3 billion people, 55 countries, over 2,000 different languages, we're talking about uh, a massive market for substances. And we're also talking about a massive deficit of knowledge about what is going on within each of these particular markets. Then we have the question of why. Why do people turn to drugs either as a user or someone actively or passively involved in the illicit drug markets? I think the first thing that would come to mind for me is to respond to that by saying, in many ways, drugs are a solution for a lot of people in Africa. Drugs are a way of coping with massive underdevelopment marginalization, high rates of poverty, vulnerability in communities, coping with violence and communities of violence, existing in environments that are dominated by criminalized power structures, coping with things maybe as simple as, as trying to deal with, with pain, trying to address health needs in the absence of the availability of necessary pharmaceuticals or, or a health system that can address those issues effectively, or a health system that discriminates against individuals who, who aren't able to access its services in any meaningful way. They're also a solution from a livelihoods point of view for many across the continent, whether it's the illicit cultivation of cannabis, participating in, in illicit markets from the point of view of trying to earn some income to provide food for your family or, or just to exist, just to, to get from day to day because there are absent social services or a social service, a social safety net to address these needs in many places. So I think uh, are drugs a problem in Africa? On the one hand, you could look at it from a security point of view. And, and uh, of course, there is a massive involvement in organized criminal economies for drugs as a commodity, as an illicit commodity that is earning an income for individuals in society who are participating in the illicit economy for, for a particular reason. But for many, particularly the most marginalized and the most vulnerable, drugs and the drug market is, is something of a last gasp solution in order to, to try and, and support their own existence. So it's it's, it's a long way of saying that it's a very complicated matter. And it's not something as simple as saying drugs are bad, we must stop drugs. We can't address the challenges around illicit drug markets and flows without also acknowledging the, the vast development challenges that exist on the continent and in, in many communities in particular. And the fact that there are many, many, many other things that have to be addressed alongside actions of responding to illicit drug markets and drug flows 
in order to try and begin the process of creating a development-focused solution to what is a, a very challenging and, and interwoven, complicated situation. A development-focused solution. What does that mean exactly? For a number of years, the UN Drug Control Strategy focused on law enforcement and the repression of illicit drug markets, a strategy that hasn't been able to stem the increase in volume and existence of illicit drugs, particularly relating to drug cultivation. Remember that three of the main illicit drugs start their lives as plants, cocaine, cannabis, and heroin. So from around the 80s onwards, there was a growing understanding that things had to change and a new development-led approach was needed. Here's Daniel Brombacher, the head of the Global Partnership and Drug Policies and Development at GIZ in Germany. Crop substitution programs are like law enforcement and merely repressive approaches. They're heavily focused on the plant itself. So they seek to substitute a crop and replace it by another one. But such a narrow approach, simply saying, okay, please abandon coca now, we're going for coffee or cocoa, is usually not working for the same reason I mentioned before. If you do ignore the root causes and the framework conditions, then it's not going to be sustainable. If poverty, marginalization, lack of access to markets is not taken into account, and is not addressed, then simply the illicit cultivation will be ongoing. Because basically it's a, it's a very narrow approach, crop substitution and the alternative development approach or the development-oriented drug policy approach is seeking to address framework conditions and not the plan by itself. This development-led drug policy, also known as alternative development or AD, can be complex. So let's look at it in more detail. And we begin with women and the role they play in the transformation from illicit to licit livelihoods. When we look at the different roles women have in drug crop cultivating areas, then we can see that women usually have a multifold, a highly diverse set of different roles. Women are usually in charge of food security for the household. They are in charge of education. They are in charge of, of the kids. They are in charge of caretaking for the elders. Well, usually men are heavily focused on the activities around drug crop cultivation and processing of those drugs. We have also learned in the course of the years that women are more prone and more interested in a transition towards illicit livelihoods. And they know that basically building your household and your income only on illicit drug crop cultivation is not sustainable and is not a risk-averse strategy. Because illicit drug crops may be destroyed, we have organized crime and armed groups around that put the members of the household to risks. Uh, we have very often repressive government policies towards those families. But when you build illicit livelihoods, then you can basically build a more sustainable and less risk-prone future for the whole household. So definitely what we see is that the drugs issue, not only in terms of cultivation, but also in the fields of trafficking, also drug use, is heavily gender-sensitive. And any successful AD approach also needs to have a gender transformative element because it tends to make those endeavors and those efforts more sustainable. Another aspect to the law enforcement strategy and crop eradication is the relationship between this policy and human rights concerns. This is something that alternative development seeks to avoid. A lot of the global debate usually focuses on human rights and drug trafficking on human rights and uh, prisons and uh, drug use, but also in the field of drug crop cultivation, we see 
frequently in some countries, there are very often violations of human rights around drug policies addressing drug crop cultivation. This especially refers to forced eradication. That's an instrument or policy that German government and also the, the European Union do not recognize. And we seek to avoid that and we criticize it because we think that there are strong is a strong element of human rights violations included there. So in our approach, general drug policy in Germany, but also in Europe, is guided by the recognition of human rights. So human rights are a key guideline for any engagement that we have in the field of alternative development. Basically, that means that we seek not to have a negative impact on the security of the farmers we are working with and we apply the principle of do no harm. In any case, we avoid repression, we avoid to put food security of farmer communities at risk. So basically, human rights are underlying and guiding principle for our work in the field of alternative development, where there are quite a lot of linkages between drug policy and human rights. Now let's look at where Africa sits in the global illicit drug trade. Whether it's cocaine entering the West African country of Guinea-Bissau or the cannabis cultivation at the foot of the Rif Mountains in Morocco or heroin traveling the southern route out of Afghanistan and into East Africa or the precursor chemicals for methamphetamine landing on the shores of South Africa before entering domestic labs. Africa is fundamentally entrenched in the global supply chains for illicit drugs. Now, we can't go into every aspect of drug trafficking and cultivation in each region, but we will focus on some important elements, starting with North Africa, a region famous for its cannabis cultivation. There is a uh, cultivation, especially in the north of Morocco, of cannabis. That has been going for decades. This is Professor Jalal Toufik, the head of the National Center for Drug Abuse Prevention and Research in Morocco and the director of the Moroccan National Observatory on Drugs and Addictions. And there's also a huge effort on the part of the government to eradicate that cultivation. And we went down from something like 250,000 hectares, let's say 10 years ago, to now less than 40,000 hectares officially of cannabis. The thing is that it's not the same cannabis. The cannabis that was used to be cultivated in the north of Morocco was low-concentrated THC. Now we are seeing something that's highly concentrated in THC, so it's not the same plant anymore, and it's not the same traditional cultivation anymore. So there is still a cultivation, but there is a huge eradication programs, really, to be honest with you. So law enforcement in Morocco has really pushed for the eradication of cannabis cultivation in the country. But the drug is still being grown and still being exported. You can develop whatever region you want, but if you still have huge demand on your soil in your country, that's a big problem. If you have illicit financial flows, that's a big problem. If you have huge corruption, it's a problem. And if you have also social crises, that's a big problem. So dealing with drug, with drugs and, and drug trafficking and drug traffic in general, of course, it needs to be development-oriented, but not only development-oriented, or development with a capital D, 
how does that apply to all the North African countries? It, North African countries have a lot of similarities, but at the same time, a lot of differences. They have a lot of similarities in, in terms of the culture, societal features, the language, the religions with S. But at the same time, they chose different paths in terms of their politics, also their economy. If you look, for example, there's a huge difference between Algeria and Morocco, just for an example. Algeria has chosen to be a huge gas producer and not a very open market. Whereas in Morocco, there's no gas, but it's a very open market. So it's really different. But but then again, and, and it's important in terms of, for example, in Algeria, the some of these psychotropic drugs are subsidized. Because they're subsidized, of course, they, their cost is so low that they cross also the border to go to to be sold in, in other countries. So that's that's one of the, uh, the problems that we can see. But at the same time, it's... Uh, I think that the uh, some of the recipes could apply to all the countries of the world. If you try to attain your, the sustainable development goals, or if you focus on the development of any society, indirectly or directly, you're dealing with drug use. If you promote human rights, if you promote democracy, if you promote... It's one of the ways, of course, to deal with drug use. But then again, it's not about only development. It's a really holistic approach that includes promotion of development. Let's move on to East Africa, which plays an important role on the southern route of the heroin trade and facilitates the transit of the drug between Afghanistan and Europe. But it also travels by Dao along the ancient trading route down the East African coast on its way south. In recent times, other markets have grown, cocaine and methamphetamine. And worryingly, research has shown that users have been reported to be as young as eight years old. Young users are mainly found in different coastal towns. In Kenya, we have areas like Malindi, Kilifi, Mombasa and most parts of Nairobi. This is Joyce Kimani, the Observatory Coordinator for East and Horn of Africa at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. It's important to note that women form at least 30% of the using population in these drugs. Why it has become popular is because we've seen a lot of commercial flights into Jomo Kenyatta International Airport and uh, airports like Bole, which are key entry points for illegal drugs especially from the Asia and the Middle East. And then we also have different seaports, for example, in Mombasa and Dar es Salaam, which are very popular when it comes to bringing in drugs. So we've become a hub for transatlantic drug trade across the region. So we've heard how East Africa is a transit zone for drug trafficking to Europe and further into the African continent. But what about drug cultivation and production in the region? When it comes to drug cultivation, we've seen a lot of growing of bang and poppy, especially across the region. And we've seen gangs take advantage of a lot of empty spaces. For example, in a place called Nakuru, where I come from, we saw gangs in the area look out for these old houses where either the owner died and left them, and they used those as cultivation hubs. We've also seen areas like inside the rural villages where Villagers continue to cultivate drugs, but they pretend that they do not know it's drugs. So 
the cultivation is on the rise and people are more and more taking advantage of these empty spaces and empty lands, uh, especially in Kenya. And then it continues to become a big problem. Finally, what about drug use in the region? One of the key negative impacts include, for example, the rise in HIV, AIDS and hepatitis C, which are really inclined towards, they're related towards a lot of drug use. And we've also seen, especially in the last few months, there's an increase in crime because some of these drug dealers just need drugs to get through the day. So we've seen a lot of petty crime and then we've seen a lot of things like date rapes and gender-based violence among peers. And these are also attributed to the rise in drug use across the region. Drug trafficking and drug trade is also aligned to other organized crime. The fact that we have an increase in drug use, we also see that there will always automatically be an increase in poaching. There'll be an increase in flora and fauna crimes. There'll be an increase in child labor, human trafficking. I think it's also important to mention that we have a lot of opioid babies born to mothers who are using opioids. And then this also is coupled with the fact that we have a lot of school dropouts. Well, let's turn to Southern Africa now, and in particular, South Africa, which has mature drug markets. Within South Africa, the only drug that is produced domestically at any scale is cannabis. In August last year, the South African government presented its Cannabis Master Plan as part of discussions over the legalization and commercialization of cannabis. They estimate that the cannabis industry is worth over a billion US dollars a year and could create tens of thousands of jobs. Beyond that, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, or the precursor chemicals needed to create meth are all imported. Here's Simone Hasem, Senior Analyst at Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Cannabis has a more ambiguous status. There's been partial decriminalization through a privacy provision linked to the constitution. For hard drugs like meth and heroin and crack, which is also quite widely consumed, these markets rely on illegal imports, either of precursor chemicals or of the finished product. And we see some degree of processing of meth inside the country so that meth facilities have been bust. There's definitely uh, production using precursors to make the final product meth, but there's also finished meth that's imported. With heroin, we really only see repackaging and cutting happening in the country. Though this varies from you know, very artisanal methods that are used to crush heroin and package it into retail size volumes to facilities in the city of Durban, which have been found to contain very sophisticated capsule machines that are used in pharmaceutical trades, which can produce thousands of capsules of heroin, thousands upon thousands in the space of an hour. South Africa is often at the end of the line for international illicit drug flows. As we heard before, the heroin that travels from Afghanistan to Pakistan before being loaded onto dows and traveling down the East African coast and making land in places such as Dar es Salaam in Tanzania or Pemba in northern Mozambique travels across land and eventually ends up in South Africa. Then we have methamphetamine. There's an interesting story as to how meth entered the South African market in the late 90s. Jason tells us this in his report, A Synthetic Age. It involved the widely trafficked abalone, a type of sea snail highly prized in East Asia. 
To obtain the precursor chemicals to create methamphetamine would cost a fortune in South Africa. So criminal syndicates began to barter poached abalone for precursor chemicals with Chinese syndicates, a mutually beneficial arrangement. Alongside domestic production, we also see an international trade in methamphetamine entering the market. With this mature, stable and heavily structured illicit drug market, drug use is common in South Africa. While we find drug use across South African society, it's true that the most harmful drugs, the ones which have the highest rates of dependency and often the worst physical side effects, mostly because they're the cheapest, most prevalent in marginalized poor communities, underrepresented and under-resourced communities who also often have the least voice in society for calling attention to the issues that are affecting them and to calling for greater government attention to the problems that they see in their neighborhoods. And it's definitely quite striking that in a lot of these neighborhoods, people do identify widespread drug dependence and drug use and the criminality associated with illegal drug markets to be very severe problems, which both are driven by by problems of poverty and inequality and unemployment, but also deepen those problems in various ways. South Africa has seen a heavy-handed law enforcement response that has had little success in combating the illicit drug markets and the criminal gangs that operate it. Simone has studied these illicit markets in the country and wider region over the past few years and believes that the only really effective and sustainable responses will be grounded in development concerns like tackling inequality, high levels of unemployment, poverty, and so on. One is understanding the role that socioeconomic conditions play. They can be a driver of drug use, and they can also be something that's made worse as people suffer from the effects of dependence on illegal drugs, are often severely marginalized and ostracized, often struggle to access health facilities, often are afraid to call for help from the police when they need it. And in various many ways, their marginalization becomes compounded. There's a very big mandate, I feel, for African countries and South Africa in particular to find a method of policing drug markets that doesn't heap the largest amount of criminalization and harm on users, but rather directs it towards lynch points in the illegal market, like major traffickers, corrupt individuals who provide protection to organized crime. And I think that a development orientation really highlights that because when we consider how do we have solidarity with people who are poor and marginalized, how do we create a world in which people can escape poverty and can realize their potential as human beings and contribute to society, I think that really leads us away from approaching criminal markets in ways that use very heavy-handed law enforcement and police violence to contain the symptoms of, of drug markets rather than addressing their root drivers. Finally, let's look at West Africa. Now, last year, the GI released the first ever Global Organized Crime Index, in which 193 countries around the world were ranked on their levels of criminality and resilience. Of the 15 countries in West Africa, 13 sit within the top 100 globally. And leading the pack in every metric is the most populous nation in West Africa, Nigeria, which has the second highest criminality score on the continent of Africa and ranks fifth in the world. 
The region is a transit territory for a number of different illicit trades, from pangolin scales and cocaine to timber and the infamous Nigerian human trafficking networks. Etanibi Alamika is a professor of criminology at the University of Jos in Nigeria. Basically, West Africa is still a transit route for global drug trade. Of course, when I say that, we also recognize, of course, there is trafficking through West Africa to other regions of Africa, like Southern Africa and East Africa too. The other dimension of which is not global is also the participation of West Africans, either in form of a loose uh, network on their own or a loose network of West Africans and other foreign nationals participating in the trafficking of drugs to Europe, into America, and to other countries within Africa. So there, there are two levels. The dominant one is still as a transit route, and the second one is uh, that of West Africans as actors in the illicit market on the globe. With such significant quantities of illicit drugs transiting through the region, you would perhaps expect that leakage would be a serious issue. Instead, in West Africa, drug abuse follows a different trend. In terms of drug as a phenomenon in West Africa, starting from abuse, that while the international concern in regard to West Africa is with regards to cocaine, heroin particularly, the widely abused drugs in West Africa are not those, but rather those that are locally cultivated and processed, particularly marijuana, which is cultivated across West African countries. In Nigeria, there's massive cultivation of marijuana across the states. And in recent times, Ghana has even gone to have what is regarded as a higher quality. And in addition to that, of course, in recent times, there have been almost an epidemic proportion of abuse of codeine and tramadol across West African countries to the point where codeine had to be banned. So in terms of abuse, drugs of concern are not those that are of international concern. And that is, this is important disjuncture, distortion in policy. Our policies are designed to respond to foreign pressure rather than the phenomenon of abuse and the consequences at the local level. In terms of trend, of course, recent uh, survey in Ghana and Nigeria, and to extent in Senegal, indicate that there's an increase in drug abuse among Jews particularly. And that has been clearly linked to, first, the high population of young people in Africa, generally and West Africa, whereby between 60 and 70% of the population uh, below 35 years. And in that context, what compounds it is the fact that the economies are not doing well, the infrastructures are sliding down into deterioration, employment opportunities, educational opportunities are not as strong as they ought to be. So all these put together seem to be explaining the increasing trend of youth drug abuse. So drug abuse is affecting the youth, while West Africa continues to be a transit region for the trafficking of illicit drugs. Why is this the case? And what are the conditions that allow this? Take people out of marginalization, out of poverty, into economic empowerment field. And then, of course, they will not be available to, for those kind of cultivation. We have a large amount of land in West Africa, but that doesn't mean 
there isn't alternative use. I just give an example that up to the 70s, cocoa had a very high price from colonial era at that time. Coffee, cotton, and the rest of them, but they're no longer big sale. So are there products, you know, farm products, farm alternatives that can grow in those places that can be introduced to agricultural program, agricultural empowerment program? So it is actually conceiving the policies not within the narrow war against drug or drug policy. The drug policy itself should be a component of a larger, wider economic and political reform and development program. The African continent has traditionally taken a prohibitionist approach to illicit drugs, adopting a strongly criminalized policy response almost across the board. In recent years, we have seen a change or relaxation in attitudes towards things like cannabis, as we've heard in South Africa. And this approach is hard to argue with, given the hardline criminalized approach doesn't appear to be working, and drug use and the resulting societal problems are not declining. So how can a development approach to illicit drug policy help solve these problems? Here's Jason Eli again. I think it's an extraordinarily challenging solution. And it's, it's something that involves all aspects of, of a government's resources, whether it be improving infrastructure, dealing with the, the criminal groups involved in, in one way. But you can't simply push one group out and then feel that the job is done because another group will just come in and, and replace uh, the situation. So it's dealing with people's basic needs. And these basic needs are, are housing, or health-related needs, jobs, all the, the, the hardest parts of government, right? These are the, the, the hardest things to do in these environments is, is to try and, and build up the structures necessary for illicit economy to, to both emerge and prosper. So I think when we talk about moving forward on the continent in the perspective in particular of the sustainable development goals, I think we really need to consider the challenges that are occurring in, in many of the urban environments across the continent, because these are some of the fastest growing places on earth. These are some of the places where the problems continue to fester, continue to increase in, in their intensity as populations grow and pressures on the, the very limited infrastructure in place uh, continue to increase. The hardest parts of government. That's a really interesting phrase and a valuable one to consider when coming up with solutions to illicit drug policy issues. Let's give the final word to Daniel Brombacher from GIZ. So what I think is definitely needed is to strengthen a development-oriented thinking in drug policy in Africa, because we do see, despite the progress in some countries and also at the African Union level, we do see that there's not, let's say, a general understanding or a general consensus that development should play a role in drug policies on the African continent. And that's something where we would like to jump in with the Drugs and Development Hub in order also to create a platform for discussion between relevant actors, especially governments and civil society, to see what would be the role of development in the African drug policy. Well, that's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Jason Eli, 
Daniel Brombacher, Simone Haysom, Etanibi Alamika, Jalal Tufik, Joyce Kimani, and John Collins. For more information about alternative development, you can head over to the Drugs and Development Hub website. There's a link in the podcast notes. You can also follow them on Twitter by searching for at dev underscore drugs. Equally, you can find the global initiative across social media. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. And for more episodes and other podcasts, videos or research into organized crime, go to our website, globalinitiative.net. This was Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening.